Welcome back and thank you for joining us for the third episode installment of Science Policy in the Spotlight series on COVID-19 and schooling. My name is Emily Schaefer and I am one of the hosts of the podcast In the Spotlight, which is brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force. In this series, we're interviewing multiple members of the greater Chicago community about their personal experiences and expertise related to COVID-19 and K-12 schooling. We want to understand from multiple different perspectives all of the pieces of information that we need to be thinking about when we create evidence-based policies about continuing schooling during the pandemic. Complementing the information we heard in yesterday's episode about the risk of COVID-19 to children, today we'll be continuing the conversation using science on COVID-19 specifically focused on transmission rates in schools. I am so thrilled that I got to speak with another infectious disease expert at Lurie Children's Hospital who does research on the topic of transmission in Chicago schools. Um, Hi, my name is Priya Edward. I am currently a pediatric infectious disease fellow um, at Lurie Children's Hospital. And in addition to my clinical work, my uh, research work over the past two years or so has been focused on COVID-19 and children, specifically in school settings. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about the research that you've been up to and maybe how the research questions have changed over the course of COVID. Sure. So our initial um, research question that was posed as part of this project back in the fall of 2020, when pretty much all schools were remote at that point, the initial question was basically, are are children safe to be? in in person in school. And so our initial work at the beginning, almost a full year ago, um, at the beginning of 2021, um, was in basically the largest private school system in Chicago that was in person. And we looked basically at rates of asymptomatic children who were positive, who were in, in school settings. And sort of the question has changed now to now that schools are are in session for the most part, pretty much all across the country are um, in person. The questions are changed to sort of what mitigation, risk mitigation procedures are are required to keep kids in school safely. So um, our initial study was done January to March of 2021 in a large private school system in Chicago. Um, And so we, we looked at asymptomatic kids who were in schools and did testing Uh, COVID testing, so PCR testing. And we focused on schools, we tried to focus on schools that were in the areas that were most hardest hit by COVID, both looking at positivity rates through the fall and early winter in in various zip codes in Chicago and tried to target schools that um, that were in those zip codes, as well as schools that were in zip codes with lower childhood opportunity indexes. So areas where, um, they were um, higher disparities and so places where there were lower resources for students, which oftentimes corresponded to um, areas in Chicago that had higher rates of COVID. I'm going to interject here and give a little bit more information about this Childhood Opportunity Index that Dr. Edward mentioned. 
especially since discussion about disparities in resources and COVID-19 response have come up in our other episodes, I want us to understand better what criteria this study used to select schools that were being harder hit by COVID. In Dr. Edwards' study, these high-risk zip codes are defined based on COVID-19 transmission rates being much higher than the city average for the majority of the pandemic, and often labeled as substantial or high levels of community transmission based on other sources. Now, they also use this criteria of low or very low childhood opportunity index. The childhood opportunity index measures and maps the quality of resources and conditions that matter for children to develop in a healthy way in neighborhoods where they live. This metric has been very recently established across the country in 2014 and is used to motivate a lot of the changes that we need in order to improve equity and access to many different resources. And it combines a lot of different indicators together to come up with a single number. A lot of these indicators are clustered around important topics like access to education, quality of environment, their social and economic environment as well. So pretty important stuff. The city of Chicago reports some detailed numbers and rates of change on the Childhood Opportunity Index across different neighborhoods in Chicago that is definitely worth checking out and will be linked in the show notes. The trends are very unsurprising given the amount of inequity that we know exists in Chicago. For example, West and South Side neighborhoods fare far worse than their North Side neighborhood counterparts, and 48% of Chicago children live in what qualifies as a low or very low childhood opportunity index area. And also, the 10 worst performing neighborhoods in the city of Chicago are all located on the West and South Sides. And if that wasn't compelling enough, the city of Chicago reports that One in two Black and Hispanic children live in a low or very low childhood opportunity index area compared to one in 50 white children. So this information definitely seems worth keeping in mind, keeping on your radar as Chicago tries to do more in the future to tackle its inequity problem. So why exactly did their study focus on areas of low childhood opportunity index? It makes sense that if you're focusing on areas hardest hit by COVID-19, you're naturally going to see neighborhoods in Chicago of lower socioeconomic status and especially Black and Hispanic communities because we know these communities have been disproportionately affected by COVID. But Dr. Edward also tells me that the second reason that they wanted to do this was because they were studying a private school population at the time, and they wanted to make sure that they were representing schools in communities where resources might not be as available, because we really want these studies to be able to translate to as many school districts as possible. And that's certainly one of the main arguments against returning to in-person instruction. So we did uh, PCR testing of um, asymptomatic students and staff. And overall, we had fairly low positivity rates. And if we identified a positive um, participant, we referred their contacts both in their household and in the the school setting, um, and then sort of did follow-ups in terms of if their contacts had become symptomatic or tested positive. And while we didn't have that many of their close contacts who actually went to get further testing in terms of symptomatic 
um, individuals, we there were very low rates of, of subsequent positives in, in the close contacts. It was interesting because I think thinking about sort of the epidemiologic link of those that were uh, of the positives, it sort of drives home the point that sometimes it can be really hard to determine if someone was positive because of a contact in school or because of a contact out in the community or at home. And it can be really hard to tell. And so sometimes when we would call the the um, the families of the positive participants, they'd be like, oh yeah, well, my, um, like the rest of the family was positive, positive at the same time. And so it was hard to say like, uh, if they were, if the child was positive because of contact with school or because of a person from the home. When was the study actually published? How was it received by other people? And what sort of decision making did you think it helped inform? Yeah, it was initially accepted in the summer. So it was um, like published on online, I think in August of 2021. And I think it it helped the school system that we were, uh, the private school system that we were doing testing in. They were able to show their families, look, look, look what we were doing, what we were doing last year when we were the like the pretty much the only big school system in Chicago that was in person. We were able to keep kids safe, and this was done at a time where another thing that um, that has changed very significantly from when we did this work to now is that um, now in most schools, there is a testing surveillance testing system that's in place through the school district. But back a year ago, there weren't, they were not doing surveillance testing. I think overall, it's sort of added to the literature that schools are safe to be in for kids. And we kind of had the caveat that this was done at a time where, you know, we had pretty good, the schools, I should say, had pretty good risk mitigation procedures. So all the kids were masking, they were distancing pretty well. The one thing is when we're thinking about a private school system versus a very, very large public school system like CPS, the resources available for doing these risk mitigation procedures are a little bit different. Um, It might be harder for schools to do the distancing just based on their school size and to have people available to help kids keep their masks on or things like that. So I think um, in some ways it is a little bit hard to translate to other school systems, but I think our study as well as many other studies across the country have overall shown that kids are safe to be in school, especially, I would say, especially at times when the overall community rates of COVID are low, we're not like in high surge times. So That's awesome to hear that, in general, schools should pose no additional risk compared to any other social setting. And obviously, with COVID, a lot has changed very quickly, especially since this study initially came out. We've got these new variants that has changed the transmissibility of the virus and maybe what the disease ends up looking like. And alongside all of these changes, we also have a desire for changing guidelines on what's considered safe. So if you were to repeat a study like this now, what do you think you would see? What what do you think it would look like? Yeah, I think it is a really interesting time in that 
um, when we when studies are done like this, it's hard to do in a really scientific fashion because it, there's so many variables to control for. And so I think it would be interesting and will be interesting um, to look at rates, you know, when kids are not required to wear masks. Um, and important to think about, I mean, in the CPS schools that this this past week have gone sort of mask optional to note how many kids are, um, you know, actually how many kids are still masked or, or not masked. Um, and then taking into account vaccination rates and overall, like looking at community levels too is important. But I think it'll be interesting to see what the rates of um, the rates are now that masks are, are optional. Since this study was done, the Omicron variant has quickly become the dominant variant of COVID. And alongside that, we saw really big changes in transmissibility. Do we understand yet how this data might have changed specifically for kids? I think it's a it's a great question. I, I think there's not a, like this exact point in time, exact data to tell us that yet. But we know that Omicron is more transmissible and that those who have been vaccinated can still become infected, although it, the vac- vaccine seems to still prevent against severe disease. I think it's a little bit hard to answer the question because at least when we're thinking about the CPS schools, the Omicron surge really happened like right before winter break, over winter break, and then a little bit after winter break, but then schools went on pause for a little bit with the kind of the agreement between CPS and CTU. Um, And so they were high rates. They were quite high rates with CPS's um, weekly testing during that period. But because of all these breaks, it's, it's a little bit hard to be able to say what the rates of secondary transmission were. And because the community rates were so high as well, it's again, hard to say were kids who were getting infected, getting infected from school, a school contact or from a household or community contact as well. I think the bottom line is Omicron was, seems to be more transmissible, but it's hard to say in a school setting what that means. That definitely makes sense. Are you or anyone else in the greater Chicago area doing ongoing research on the subject? Yeah. So our team, which is a really big team between Larry and um, Comer Children's Hospital and um, in collaboration with CPS, um, we've been doing work since the fall of this year, looking at rates of COVID in those sort of to augment their weekly testing that CPS has under uh, has, has implemented. Um, and so looking at rates of COVID in the sort of the non-close context, but still within a school that might have, that has, has had an outbreak. And so we haven't found significantly high, high rates um, at this point, but I think it'll be interesting overall, especially over the past couple of months, be able to look at sort of the trends of what has been going on with um, the weekly testing that CPS has has undertaken. And um, specifically now that some of the risk mitigation, like masking, have become optional. So you all have been taking data at Chicago Public Schools before these guidelines have changed and will continue to do so after. That's really awesome to hear. 
One thing that's come up a lot in my other conversations with people so far on the subject of COVID-19 and schooling has been disparities between schools, maybe in terms of resources against COVID-19 or just general preparedness. Do you see these sorts of trends or disparities manifest at all in your data? Um, it's not something that has had a strong single signal in terms of what um, what we've seen, but I guess the sort of structure of how we're looking at things are our team is basically going to schools that have had an outbreak already, and so it it seems to correlate with schools that are in areas or, or in zip codes that have had overall higher rates of COVID um, in terms of their case rates overall in the community. And these are related to areas that might be under-resourced in terms of healthcare in general, and then also in terms of you know, vaccination rates as well. Since vaccines have become um, available for kids, I would say the the 12 to 17 year old rates, I don't have the exact numbers, but they've been, they've been fairly stable. Um, and there's a, there's a good proportion of, of the older kids, adolescents who've been fully vaccinated, but the five to 11 year olds, um, it's extremely variable across Chicago um, and different Chicago neighborhoods. Now, we referenced some Chicago vaccination rate data in the first episode of the series with Dennis Forsooth at the Chicago Public Schools, but now let's take a look more specifically at vaccination rates within Chicago Public Schools, not just in the community in general. The Chicago Teachers Union keeps a relatively up-to-date data set on vaccination rates by school that I'll make sure is linked in the show notes so that you can look at it for yourself, but I will share a few observations that I made from all of this. While the number of students eligible for vaccination in this data set isn't broken down by age, like Dr. Edward mentions, we can definitely already see these huge differences in vaccination rate across different schools. So this data is from over 500 Chicago public schools, and the average fully vaccination rate amongst eligible students is under 40%, which is significantly lower than the average vaccination rates across the city. There are many schools that have as little as 5 to 10% of their eligible students fully vaccinated, and other schools where there are 60, 70, 80, maybe even 90% of eligible students are vaccinated. So when you think about it that way, it's it's pretty startling to realize that all of these schools, regardless of vaccination rate, are sharing the exact same recommended guidelines for COVID-19 safety. One thing that I think has been difficult in terms of looking at the data in terms of CPS's weekly testing um, is that in the beginning of the school year, in the fall of 2021, the CPS's weekly testing, it's always been an opt-in program, meaning that parents um, have to sign their kids up for weekly testing and consent. And so at the beginning, they were fairly low levels of participation in terms of the weekly testing. So I think overall less than 25% in some schools, it was less than 5%. And with the Omicron surge, I think there was a, a an increased interest in terms of 
parents wanting their kids to be tested more because of the increased community rates. And then also um, sort of a push from CPS in terms of making things a little bit easier for parents to be able to sign up and and consent to their um, to their children being tested. So now I think it's about 50% overall in terms of those who've opted in for testing. Um, it might be even more than that. Okay. I did not realize that this was an opt-in program. So that's very interesting. So at least your data from the fall then is probably only from a very small subset of the student population, which already is kind of an inherent limitation with these sorts of studies. But I'm also wondering if there's a little bit of a bias there in the data that you're collecting, that the students who are opting in for this weekly testing are then more likely to have been taking COVID guidelines more seriously in and out of school. Is that something that you've considered? Yeah. Um, so this is something that um, even back last year when we were doing um, work in the private school system, it was difficult in a lot of ways to get participation in our study. One was, you know, we were doing testing and kids when it wasn't something that was sort of a normal thing to happen. So parents maybe didn't want their kids to be pulled out of the classroom, even if it was for just a couple of minutes. Um, They didn't want their kids to go through an uncomfortable test. And these were in settings um, where consequences of a positive test could hit families hard. This was back when you know kids had to quarant- kids and their families had to quarantine for 10 to 14 days after a positive test. There were implications in terms of childcare and missing work um, work in schools. So the parents who signed their kids up to be participants, like you said, we think there was likely a bias in terms of those who might have been more inclined to be um, more concerned about COVID or perhaps had the resources to be able to deal with what quarantine might mean um, if their kid was positive. I, I still think some of those factors are in play. And like you said, those who sign their kids up for weekly testing um, or even testing within um, within our study will be more likely to be taking things with COVID a little bit more seriously. I think that's just an inherent bias with these types of studies. Yeah. And on that note, are there any other big challenges to doing COVID-19 research that might add some more limitations to your studies that we should all be aware of? I think, you know, anytime that we're doing testing um, or research in a school or community setting, getting buy-in from the principals and from the school district and sort of just the community itself to <laughs> is important. It's challenging, especially at this point in time, because everybody in the school system is so overstretched and overworked, and they're dealing with things that you know, as an educator or a um, school administrator, they never thought that they would have to, this this was not part of their job description. Um, And so just like the amount of time of their day that is taken up by COVID testing and contact tracing and answering parents' questions and sort of dealing with all of that with, and then having to deal with a research study on top of that. Um, Also, I think people are kind of tired of COVID in some ways. It's it's taken over everyone's life for the past two years. And so 
I think people want to do everything they can to to keep kids in school and keep kids safe, but um, thinking about just like adding another thing <laughs> thing to their to their plate in terms of um, conducting research, um, it's understandably a, a big ask for some communities. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. My last question for you is about the future. Knowing that COVID-19 is going to be studied for a long time after this, what are the lingering questions about COVID-19 and schools that you would like to see answered, either by yourself and your research team or anybody else in the COVID-19 research field? I think going forward, it'll be interesting to see if people are able to really differentiate community transmission from in-school transmission. I think some of this would have to be done on sort of the sequencing molecular level. And I think the big question now is when we start to peel back the safety measures that we have in place, um, obviously masking is the hot button (laughs) issue here. What things are going to look like in terms of numbers in in our school settings. I think I'm optimistic just given how low community rates are and have been over the past couple of weeks, sort of after we've gotten over this Omicron surge, but thinking also in the future if there's, if and when there's a new variant um, and another surge, what that might look like in terms of schools when there may or may not be some of the safety measures that we've had in place. It's really wonderful to hear an infectious disease specialist being optimistic about the future of COVID-19 in schools. And it's also interesting that both Dr. Edward and Dr. Held Sargent from our most recent episode echoed very similar concerns for the future as well. And that concern is that we should not only be looking out for COVID-19 in schools and what guidelines should look like now, but also think ahead to how we're going to be prepared to adapt our strategies quickly in the future when things inevitably evolve all over again. With that, I'll conclude the third installment of this episode series of Science Policy in the Spotlight about COVID-19 and schooling in the greater Chicago area. Thank you again to Dr. Priya Edward for taking the time to share information on her research studies and all of her scientific expertise with us. We've heard a lot of fascinating information in this conversation. So if anything's really intrigued you, I would encourage you to check out some of the primary sources for the scientific data in the show notes of the episode. In the meantime, thank you for listening and thank you to the many people at SPOT, Research America, and the podcast team for helping make this episode possible, especially Nicholas Scruton Alvarado, Colleen O'Brien, and Bambang Triad Mojo. There's still one more episode left in this series on COVID-19 and K-12 schooling, and I'm excited for a strong finish. So tune in for another episode tomorrow. 